You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. digs here. I'm glad to see you today. Hey, go to Galatians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. Um, Galatians chapter 4. I want to uh, highlight something we just sang together um, in, in the song that we just sang. So I, I wrote down the words a little bit earlier because I was struck by them. And I, I think they capture so well uh, what, what Paul is going to say to us in some imagery uh, today in this passage. The, the line said this. Um, it was in the first verse, I guess, of the song, and, and it, it was talking about you, you tore down every idol. So, so we sang these words. You tore down every idol, and then there was this line. It said, you, you wrecked my life with grace. Isn't that an interesting line? You tore down every idol... You wrecked my life with grace. And then it said, you know, then we sing, we sing about God, you're so holy, one so holy, one so kind. Uh, you're good in all your ways. King of mercy lifted high. Love so true, I, I stand amazed. But it's that line, it's, it's that line of, you, you wrecked my life with grace. You know, there's this, there's this, one sense in which Paul has been talking to the Galatians about the ramifications of what it means that God has come through His Son Jesus and has wrecked their life with grace. Which means that that their life is not the same anymore. That, that, That when God comes and wrecks your life with grace, it means you, you, your whole life, the weight of your whole life, you, you've given your whole life to the care of His Son, Jesus. And in that, what Paul is going to say that freedom, real, true freedom, is only found when the whole weight of your life is given to the care of His Son, Jesus. And to the degree that we try to keep control of parts of it, or we try to say, no, I just, man, I get impatient, or I, 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 I want what I really want, and I, and, and, and I don't think God's going to do for me what I really want, and I, I don't know that God sees me, or, or because of my past, or because of my present, I, I don't think God's going to come through for me. And so we step in, not putting the care, the full weight of the care of our life onto His Son, Jesus. And to the degree we're not doing that, that we're not free, is what Paul is going to say. He's talking about a, a wrecking our life with grace. A Danish philosopher and theologian, Søren Kierkegaard, I, I read this parable a couple of years ago, and I'm wanted to bring it back to you because it's such a great parable, and I, I think it really highlights 
um, what Paul's been talking about in all of chapter 4. And we're going to finish chapter 4 this morning because I'm going to start in chapter or verse 21 here in just a minute. But he, Kierkegaard, te- Kierkegaard tells this parable and he tells it like this. He says, imagine a day laborer living in a great kingdom. He says, the day laborer never dreamed that the emperor knew he existed who who then would consider himself indescribably favored, uh, favored just to be permitted to see the emperor once, something he would relate to his children and grandchildren as the most important event of his life. But suppose the emperor did something unexpected. If the emperor sent for him and told him that he wanted him to be his son-in-law, what then? Well, quite humanly, the day laborer would be more or less puzzled and self-conscious and embarrassed by it. He would, and this is the humanness of it, humanly find it very strange and bizarre that the emperor wanted to make a fool of him or make him the laughingstock of the whole city. Such a thing is too high for me. I can't get it into my head. It it seems to me, if, if I may blurt it straight out, foolishness. Kierkegaard says in this parable, the day laborer working in the countryside recognizes the high and exalted place of the emperor. An occasional encounter with the emperor would be delightful. Enough so that the laborer could keep his own comfortable life, keep his friends, keep his identity, yet have it embellished by the honor of the emperor. A little favor that would make sense to the laborer, But what if the emperor wants to make him his own son? The prospect of adoption in this sense is an offense. It's too much closeness. It's the sort of closeness that requires giving up one's own identity. Yes, it's a high and exalted place to be the child of the emperor, the king of the land, but it's too high and exalted. It would be wonderful if the king would just send some money or a letter to cherish as a relic, but, but the king is asking for so much more. So the king's asking to be more than an accessory to his identity. The king wants his full identity, his entire life, wants him to be exalted, the, the child of the king. The Kierkegaard's giving this parable, he's, he's creating the tension that, that here is this day laborer who is... Um, who in this scenario is, is going to be lavished a grace by the emperor. But it's too much because it's a kind of a grace that would, that would wreck his life. It's too much. No, 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 I don't, I don't want all that. I, just, I was just hoping for maybe a check or a, or a letter I could put in a frame and then I could embellish it and have a story to tell, you know? Something like that. I don't want anything too disruptive to my life. I mean, I mean, day laboring is hard, and you know, making ends meet's hard, and that's not really going anywhere. But that kind of grace—that that's too much. It's, it's too much to get my mind around. It seems too scary, and that kind of intimacy seems too close. That's Kierkegaard's deal. And so he, he talks about it. It's, the king won't settle for anything less. He, he won't just be an accessory. 
He wants his whole identity. And so this is what Paul is saying. Listen, the Galatians are in danger of making Jesus an, an accessory to their life if they go to the law. If you adopt the law, if you take the law, if you take these Judaizers, these false teachers that have come in and say, look, Jesus is fine and he's a nice start, but you need the law, you need Jesus plus this. There's a standard to live up to. There's a lifestyle to adopt. There's a there's, there's things you got to do. In danger of making Jesus just an accessory to the life you are going to build. Paul is doing everything he can to save them from that kind of error, from making that kind of ruin of their life. And so look with me. I'm in Galatians 4, and I'm going to start in verse 21. I'm going to read to the end of Galatians chapter 4, and then um, we'll, we'll walk through this uh, little bit together. This is the kind of passage, by the way, that, that's why we go through uh, books of the Bible the way we do. We never probably pe- preach this passage otherwise, because when you hear this, you, you're going to think, wow, this seems like a really strange passage. Because it kind of is. But I hope by the end of this passage, you, you'll, you'll, you'll have fallen in love with this passage as much as I have this week. Well, listen to what Paul says. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. It's crystal clear, right? In verse 21, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, have you read it? Are you listening to it? See, it's a startling statement because, see, we assume, I think we assume, listen, everybody wants to be free. Everybody wants to be free, right? I mean, that's an assumption. But the Bible, I think, gives us a picture over and over again. That's not true. I mean, not really. I mean, we say we want to be free, but the truth is we don't really want freedom. I mean, not like we think we do. The, the Israelites are a perfect example. They're liberated from captivity. They are freed by God 
they are in the wilderness, but they actually don't want their freedom. It only takes them 45 days of freedom until they want to go back into slavery. You can read it in Exodus. 45 days of freedom until they begin remembering the good old days of Egypt when they say, you know, we used to sit by meat pots and eat bread till we were full. It was the good old days. Sing campfire songs. It was We had it easy, man. See, they'd forgotten the part. It only took 45 days to forget the part where it is recorded. The slave masters hated them. They made their lives bitter with hard service, ruthlessly made them work as slaves, and had decreed male babies be killed upon birth by Egyptian midwives. It only took them 45 days to forget that part of the story. And only remember, you know those meat pots and all that bread we ate? And they also forgot they were groaning, groaning to be rescued from slavery. So God rescued them. Forty-five days. And they begin longing for Egypt again. And it never stopped. It never stopped. And God carries them through the wilderness and finally takes them to the promised land. The promised land flowing with milk and honey. He says, this is your land. And they said, well, fine land that is. God just brought us here to be killed. He's going to make our wife and our children pray. In Numbers 14.3, they said, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? I mean, you read it in your heart. Almost breaks. And you know why it does? Because you know your heart is just like that. See, God wanted His people to trust Him. I mean, they couldn't see it, though. They couldn't control it. It felt like a, a free fall. It felt out of control, out of their comfort zone. It was too scary. It was too much. They, they, they began to lament and to long for their old life of slavery. We just, we just wanted some money or a letter. I mean, we just, we didn't want all that. We just wanted a day off, I guess. You see, the bondage and treachery of slavery they knew seemed more appealing than the fear or uncertainty or lack of personal control than the faith in what seemed impossible to them Faith in the unknown, but faith in God. Slavery was more appealing. See, here's the thing. True life comes by faith. And Jesus says, I am the way, truth, and the life. Trust me. And faith means that God will draw you further than your knowledge of Him. You know this? Because He wants you to trust Him. That's faith. He leads you to a place where you depend on Him. And that, you depending on Him, you know what that is? That's freedom. Complete and total 
freedom when you depend on Him. See, when Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, he's on Stephen the deacon. And be careful. When you sign up for a deacon, be careful. You've got to be able to preach the longest sermon in the Bible and then be rewarded with stoning. So, Stephen, he preaches, and he is recounting Israel's history. And in Acts 7.39, you know what he says about all this? They thrust God aside, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. But the Galatians are in danger of. They've been set free. They're in danger of going back to Egypt, so to speak. So that's why Paul is going to give them this, this picture, this illustration, this analogy. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. One was a slave woman and one was a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through a promise. So Paul, he tells this story to illustrate to them what they're doing. And it's one of the greatest stories of the Old Testament. I mean, even if you were a Gentile and you've been around Paul, you didn't grow up with this, but you've been around Paul long enough, you'd have heard this story. And so, you know, it starts back in Genesis chapter 12. You're introduced to Abraham and he's known as Abram then. And he's God's man. He's the solution. He's going to, he's the one. And yet you read it and you're like, huh, that's interesting. Because he's 75, he's married to a woman who has no children, she can't have children. And yet God shows up and calls Abram. And promises him many descendants. And you're kind of scratching your head there. The world's full of idolatry, the world's in rebellion against God, and this is the answer. Well, a few years later, and, and Romans tells us this, but a few years later, when, when knowing, when Abraham knowing that he is as good as dead, and his wife Sarah, her womb is dead, in Genesis 15, he has a conversation with God, and, and, and he says, hey, look, God, I, I have a servant, Eleazar, and, and uh, I'm not sure if you know how this deal works. But I got a plan. Eleazar could be my heir in this promise thing. We can just run this through Eleazar. God says, no. It's going to happen between you and Sarah. The offspring's going to come through you guys. And you're going to have descendants like the stars. And so, okay, I believe you, God. Well, at 85 years old, Abraham and Sarah get antsy. Nothing's happened. They've read, you know, what do you, what to expect when you're expecting. They set up the baby room, burned through some pregnancy tests. Nothing. So Sarah has a brilliant idea. She has a maidservant named Hagar. So she's young, fertile. She could spend the night with Abraham. She could have the child. And so they do that. And Abraham, listen, here's the deal. In Genesis 16, at 85 years old, 
You see, Abraham doubting God because of his present circumstances. It's what Paul means when he talks about living according to the flesh. What the Galatians, what Galatians looks like today. It's the grace of God plus something we need to do to make to make what we want happen to ourselves. I mean, I've got to do something. I'm just tired of waiting. I got to do something because the truth is, like I said earlier, I mean, I'm not sure God's going to really come through for me. Given my present circumstance or given what I know about my past, I'm just not sure. I'm I'm not sure God's going to do this thing. Look, I, I mean, I believe in God. I mean, the Galatians, they, they believe in God, but and here in this moment, I, I mean, I have to trust in myself. You ever done that? I believe in God. Going back to Egypt in your heart, it's just going back under the law. It's it's asking God to be an accessory. You're scared that grace is going to wreck your life. Those idols get taken away. See, it's not trusting God enough to place your whole life in the care of His Son, Jesus. That's what Paul's fighting for, for the Galatians. He wants them to know freedom, not slavery. You know, if, if Abraham had kept a diary, I would think his 86th year was probably a nightmare. Hagar gets pregnant. Uh, Sarah is in a blind fit of jealousy. So it's awesome. Ishmael is born as the fruit of Abraham's attempt to help God. Ishmael is the work of Abraham's hands. Ishmael's not born out of Abraham's faith. He's conceived from a lack of faith. And, and so that's going away. But when Abraham's 99 years old, in Genesis 17, God shows up again, reminds Abraham of his promise, you and Sarah are going to have a child. You know what Abraham does? Falls on his face laughing. And you know what grace is? God doesn't strike again. And Abraham picks himself up and he believes God. And Sarah overheard the conversation and she starts laughing. And God says, what are you laughing about? He says, oh, I wasn't laughing. Which, by the way, if God ever says, hey, what are you laughing about? Just come clean. And a year later, Isaac's born. And Isaac's name means laughter. 
And chapter 21 records the event. I mean, it's almost hilarious. I mean, Sarah's walking around saying, you see my son? Laughter. It's okay when you see me nursing. It's okay to laugh. Who would have thought a 90-year-old woman nursing? Abraham could be 106 when we drop him off at preschool. And Isaac was the fulfillment of the promise. He was the long-awaited seed, the offspring, through who God was going to carry on his plan to bless the world and bring the nations to himself and crush the head of Satan and to restore all that was lost. Isaac came into the world through the womb that was already dead. That's Abraham's story. The story is about God's faithfulness to his promise and to his world. And it's as though the whole earth laughs and rejoices along with Abraham and Sarah at the birth of Isaac. Because God is faithful. God is true. That's the story. Paul said, why would you ever go back there? You're free. You're from the promise. So he said, this may be interpreted, verse 24, allegorically. These women are two covenants. Now, Paul's doing this thing. Allegorically, you might have figuratively. The, the New Testament does this often. It takes events from the, from the Old Testament, and it, and it illustrates. Paul's already done it in Galatians. He said, look, you got the promise with Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, and you've got the, the, the uh, covenant at Sinai. They're two different things. It contrasts over and over, the New Testament does. These are two things. Jesus comes, and everything's different. In Romans chapter 5, Paul does it. He boils all of humanity down into two persons. The first Adam and the second Adam. In the first Adam, you know what? You all came from the first Adam and you inherited sin and death and unrighteousness. You're all from the first Adam. But there's the second Adam. And he was obedient. And he brought righteousness and life. And he died in your place. You were born this way. You can be born again into the second Adam. He does it there. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7, he crafts this elaborate one. He says, hey, listen, there are two priesthoods, two covenants. One of Melchizedek, one of the Levites. And ultimately, he says, listen, Jesus is of Melchizedek, not of the Levites. He's a king and a priest. And what what makes that so significant is the Levites, and they offered sacrifices. They could atone for sins, kind of. But they kept having to make the sacrifices over and over and over again, and all this blood was shed. Jesus came. He offered one sacrifice once and for all, and it was himself. And here was the big difference. These sacrifices, well, they can cleanse the outside. They can never cleanse the inside. They couldn't cleanse your conscience. Jesus, his sacrifice cleansed your conscience. 
conscience. You got a new heart. You're washed not only on the outside, but on the inside as well. He's greater. But Paul's doing the same thing. He's doing the same thing to say, look, men and women, here's the difference. Men and women on their own are unable to approach God on His terms or on their own terms. You can't approach God on His terms because He's holy and righteous and perfect and forever can never satisfy His demands or meet His standards. We can never do it. And we can't approach Him on our terms. And we are unable to enjoy His blessings apart from receiving them by faith. You cannot earn the blessings that God gives. You can't. Because when you seek God's blessings by your own work, you get cut off from the blessings. You become slaves. And you gain nothing and lose everything. That, that's false freedom. Like, have you read the law? You that want to be under it? So this is the illustration he uses. But in the middle of it, here's what's different about it. He drops this line of poetry, if you will, from Isaiah 54 that begins... For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. He contrasts, though, these two covenants. The covenant of Mount Sinai represents the law, the legal covenant. It enslaves. It's what all of chapter 3 and chapter 4 have been about. Hagar gives birth to a slave because... Because it's the child of, of works. Abraham's works. Abraham's efforts. Abraham's attempts to accomplish what God promised could only be received by faith. It was Sarah through whom the blessing, the promise, was going to come. So Sarah, who, who Abraham was utterly helpless to do anything in his own strength to bring about, so Isaac, that child, through Sarah, was humanly impossible. It reminds you of this conversation that Jesus has with the disciples after the rich young ruler. You remember that conversation? Rich young ruler comes. What, what must I do to inherit salvation? So Jesus gives him the well, how have you done with the law? The guy says, well, I've done pretty awesome with it, by the way. Well, the disciples are there, and they're watching this whole deal. And you have to understand, from the disciples' point of view, the rich young ruler is incredibly impressive. I mean, he's rich, he's young, he's done the law. I mean, he's impressive. I mean, the disciples have probably a full-out man crush on the rich young ruler. And yet, at the, end of the, at the end of the conversation, the rich young ruler is turned away by Jesus. To which the disciples are... I mean, they're, they're taken back. 
I mean, they're like, well, man, if he doesn't qualify, if he doesn't get in, then they say to Jesus, well, if not him, who can be saved? You know what Jesus says? With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. And the point is this. Hagar, you know what she was? Possible. You know what Sarah was? Isaac? Impossible. That's the only way. Impossible. That's what faith calls us to. The kind of faith that wrecks our life. You want possible? You want an accessory. God draws us further into the impossible. What only He can do apart from us. Well, here's the thing. Then Paul quotes right out of Isaiah 54 1. Rejoice, O barren one, who does not Let's be honest for a moment. These are words that either send you into the heights of joy or the depths of despair. And there is no neutral response to words like this. There aren't. You, you can't read this and not be moved at the core of your soul when you really hear them. I mean, in fact, the only known being that has the right to even utter the words is only one. And your understanding of that one determines your response. I mean, who has the right? Who has the right to say to one who's barren? To the barren one. Rejoice. has the right to even utter such a statement. And yet to the barren one who's been longing for the child? What? Well, what in the world? How can you say that? What gives you the right to say that? Who do you think you are? Right? How could you dare speak such a thing into the midst of of someone's deepest and most intimate longing into their most intimate pain. There's only one who can. Only one. God. And what he says is so outrageous, it can't be ignored. There's no neutral response. He doesn't leave you with any option of going, you know what, God says some really nice things, some really nice and comforting things in the Old Testament. You know, God's a really nice, comforting God. Not here. How you hear what he says absolutely depends 
on what you believe about Him. How you hear what He says absolutely depends on what you believe who He is. How you hear what He says absolutely depends on whether or not you're willing to completely trust your life, bet your life, hope, joy, future longing on Him and His promise or not. You either believe He's good and He can, or you don't. But there is no middle ground. You either hear those words and into this barrenness rushes the grace of God. Or you turn away and your heart goes back to See, Sarah was a woman, and in her culture, by not having a child, she was in shame. And that's the reason Paul used that illustration. And what he's saying is, listen, I don't, whatever your barrenness, or whatever it is, I mean, listen, if you're relying on your human ability, You'll have children. You can probably make it happen for yourself in one way or another. Look, whatever it is. But if you rely on God's ability, if you're trusting in Him, no matter who you are or what you are or what you've done, no matter what your background is, more will be your children. the one who's fertile and beneficial. More will be yours by faith than the one who accomplishes by works. That is slavery. This is freedom. This is his point. You can trust God. I mean, understand this. The law demands perfection, not progress. If you're trying hard to make a little progress, it doesn't cut it with the law. It doesn't. Not good enough. The law says, I want to see perfection. You, don't tell me about your progress. I demand perfection. Well, Hagar is a picture of our perfection. When we try and earn God's love, when we try to seek His favor, Hagar and Ishmael, is the picture of us trying to do our part. Abraham tried to help God. We all try to do our best and we try to earn His love. And Hagar's the tendency to get on the performance treadmill and work to earn God's love and favor. But here's the problem. You get on the treadmill and you try to run, you run, you run. No off button. You run, you run, you run. You try, you try, you try. No getting off. You just collapse. Why Martin Luther said that those who try to achieve the status of sons and heirs by the righteousness of the law 
or by their own righteousness as slaves, will never receive the inheritance even through, even though they work themselves to death with their great efforts. What Sarah, Paul is saying, is a picture of the gospel. Through Sarah, the free woman, the promise is fulfilled. Fulfilled. Not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Do you know that I have said that phrase every single week since we started this endeavor? And I am committed to saying it every single week until we finish this series. It is not because of what you do. It is because of what Jesus has done for you. And that is why Paul will go on and he will say here at the end, You, you brothers, you brothers and sisters, you're like Isaac, children of promise. But, but just as that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Here's what he's saying. People don't like grace. They don't. They don't. Ishmael persecuted Isaac just like, just like today. People do not like grace because we're doers and doers like people to do they don't like grace you know how you make people mad you preach the law you know how you make them really mad you preach grace like my friend Benji says Paul is drunk on 180 proof gospel and that's why he quoted Isaiah, the most gospel-rich promise in the Old Testament. They don't like it. Take it up with Benji, apparently. Why do people get mad at grace? Because it's not our nature. But it's what God offers. We, we like, you know, Bob the Builder, can we fix it? Yes, we can. No, we can't. No, we can't. I will need to be told again. Rejoice, O barren one. Trust Jesus. With your life. Trust Him. God's love for you is not dependent on what you do. It's dependent upon what Jesus has done. You are a believer this morning. You cannot lose God. He loves you because of His promise, not your performance. You get to rest in that. Trust in that. Oh, Aaron, one. Listen, this morning, if you have never trusted in Him, the invitation is yours. Trust Him with your life. Trust Him. Be set free. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I think of Paul's words just right after this. 
analogy, allegory. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So, Father, I just pray this morning, if there's anybody here that's not been set free, pray you do that. By the power of your Spirit, You would move in their heart this morning and you would ignite faith in them to believe your Son, Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection, that it's enough. Father, you've done, you have accomplished everything we need through your Son, Jesus, to bring us home to you as sons and daughters. That we know your love. You created us, you rescued us. Father, I pray we'd know that freedom this morning. Pray for all of us. We'd, we'd know it afresh. So we thank you for, for the words that Paul wrote. You inspired him to write to the Galatians 2,000 years ago. There's relevant right this minute as they were then. So I pray that these words would do their work in our hearts and minds. By the power of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus.